0: That environment exists sometimes in people's minds between the world, the real world, the world of experiences, the world of history, the world of action, and the world of Kedusha is really the subject of what we're talking about. There are people that live totally in the world of Kedusha, and the way that they relate to the world of history, of man's action, is... With it's not important, they don't deal with this. The real world is the world of Torah, the world of Kedusha, the world of Hashem. There are the people that live within the secular world and when they have to relate to issues that come up, dealing with Kedusha, it sometimes comes out apologetic, and uh, and they don't deal with it in a real in a real big way I think you have the privilege and the really good unbelievable zechus, to have a person who has a broader view of Torah, one that really bridges the gap to the extent that there is no gap, and is able to live in a world of action, in the real world, the world of, of human knowledge on the one hand, but is firmly rooted in Torah and Torah values on the other. The way that he deals with this is not through apologetics but to real Jewish pride and understanding. Before uh, continuing, I just want to, with your permission, dedicate this year to the memory of, years ago, a Talmud. Somebody who later became a Talmud Chaber. And to a certain extent, even became a Rebbe to me. Uh, Mark Weinberg, who passed away this summer. Somebody who was involved with the things that I'm doing now involvement in what's going on in conservative Jewish education are things that he lives by. And uh, it should be his chus and he lives in Shem Shem
1: it is uh, an enormous zuchut for Elaine and myself to be in your company, in the company of so many very special people who are not merely learning and growing here, but I can see are going to become each of you in your own way sources of inspiration to others and sources of growth and greatness to others I think that is for me what I remember most about Mark Weinberg's Zichroli a young man taken from this world all too young but who really used to see people's potential it always fascinated me why it was that time after time we read in Bereishit chapter 1 Vayome Elohim Yehi Vayehi Vayar Elohim That God had to say Yehi goes without saying. Baruch She'oma V'hayah HaOlam you have to have the creative word before there can be creation. So that I understand. he, I also understand. HaKadosh Baruch To do in accordance with what you said you were going to do is the very essence of Emet Ve'emunah. What I didn't understand was why it repeatedly says Vayar Kitov God saw that it was good. What is the Haviyamina? That maybe it wasn't good. HaKadosh Baruch who is all good and does good. HaTov HaMetiv How would it even enter our mind that HaKadosh Baruch in his goodness would create something not good? However, what the Torah is telling us is something incredibly profound. And it is there for us, not for Hashem, that when vayah when we see the good in people and situations, that too is part of the act of creation. When we see good in somebody else, and we praise it, and nurture it, and encourage it, we help to bring that koach into we help to bring that potential into actuality and we too become with HaKadosh Baruch Hu co-creators of something that would not have been there before to see the good in people and encourage it and help it to develop is to be God's partner in the work of creation that's what Mark Shalom Oliver did he saw the good in people And he brought it out. And that is why he still exists among us in the form of so many hundreds and indeed thousands of lives that he touched and left an indelible mark upon. And so we say this in his memory and may that memory inspire us to do just a little of what he did in so short a time. Friends, let me just, uh, since I was asked to say something about the religious opportunities that uh, occur on a a secular campus, rather than talk about the details, we'll, we'll allow you the chance to ask questions on that. Let me just give you the general framework. And here it is. If we were to ask, what is the theme of Tanakh as a whole? There could be only one possible answer. It is about Am Yisrael. It is, for the most part, about Eretz Yisrael, the journey to the land of Israel, the history of the Jewish people on the land of Israel, their exile from it, their return to it. It's about Jews, the Jewish people, and the Jewish land. What is really remarkable, therefore, is that if that is the theme of Tanakh, how come it doesn't begin with that theme? For the first 11 chapters, it deals with Adam, V'chava, Cain, V'hevo, Noah and the flood, Babel and its builders. These are universal archetypes. They're about humanity as a whole. And only with Lech Lecha, with chapter 12, does the focus of the Torah narrow to one man, one woman, one family, who become one nation. The Torah begins with the universal and then moves to the particular. This, it seems to me, is not just a feature of Tanakh. I go so far as to call it the structure of the Jewish mind. So that, for instance, if you look at Birkat Hamazon, that is how it works. Paragraph 1, God feeds everyone. Then, the focus narrows to one land, and then to, what, to Yerushalayim within that land. It moves from the universal to the particular. Ditto with the brachas, the first two brachas around Kriya Shema, Yotze Hamari varavim. That has to do with the cosmos as a whole, the universe. Only in the second bracha, Avaraba does it focus on the particular relationship between Hashem and His people. You'll find this everywhere you look. You'll find it in the weekday Amidah. The first of the Bakashot is completely universal. Ata Chonen la'adam Dat Umalamed le'enosh Pina. It is dealing with humanity as a whole. Only later then in the next Bracha, Ashivena Vinunasarasarvenu, etcetera, etc. Only later does it deal in the next paragraph with the Jewish people, with revelation with Torah. <coughs> Why? Is this significant? It is significant because the great thrust of Western thought moves in the opposite direction. Alfred North Whitehead once said that the whole of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. And Plato thought that we begin with the particular. We know our parents, we know our family, as we grow up, we learn our neighborhood, our community, our town, our country, and eventually humanity as a whole. We begin with the particular, that's the lowest level, and then we rise to the universal. And eventually we arrive to such universals that they are there only as concepts in the mind, and everything particular is boring untrue, insignificant, here today, gone tomorrow, the only things that last and that are true are the universals. So, Judaism is what I call the counter-platonic narrative in Western civilization. It is the thing that says, the truth is the opposite. We begin with the universal. First, we're human beings. But as we climb our identity becomes more and more particular. Hashem loves us in our particularity, not just in our universality. He loves us for what makes us unique, not just for what makes us the same as everyone else. So that is the first point. Tanakh begins with the universal, but it moves towards the particular. And that forms the double structure of Jewish thought. Because we've, what I've just said refers to the story. Now let us have a look at the next level, which is Brit. God makes a covenant. But what is highly significant is that God makes in Sefer Bereshit not one covenant, but two covenants. The first with B'nai Noach and through Noach with all humanity in Bereshit chapter 9. And then, in Barathees chapter 17, a particular covenant with Avram Avinu and Avram. So we find just as there is a move in the story from the universal to the particular, so there is a move in covenant from the universal covenant with humanity to the particular covenant with the Jewish people. The same, number three, applies to our relationship with God. No one expressed this better or more succinctly than Rabbi Akiva. Adam, Happy is humanity because every human being is created in the image of God. Then he says, Chaviv in Shenikrim Banim Lamako. Beloved are Israel, the particular people, because we are not just the image of God, we are the children of God. So we have three moves from the universal to particular in terms of story, in terms of covenant, in terms of relationship. Let's move to stage four. The two names of Hashem. What name of Hashem appears in Braish's chapter 1? Elohim. From chapter 4, we meet the name Hashem. What is the difference between Elohim and Hashem? Chazal say the difference is Elohim, is Midat Hadin, Hashem is Midat rachamim, And that is true. However, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in the Kuzari in Book 4 presents a different, not incompatible, but a different account of the difference between those two names that is, I think, very deep indeed. He says, what is the meaning of the word Elohim? He says, the word Ale, Aleph Lamed, is what the people of Canaan... In general, the people of that area regarded as a god. And what they regarded as god, since they were polytheists, were forces of nature. So you had the god of the rain, the god of the lightning, the goddess of the sea, the goddess of the earth. The Egyptians had all sorts of deities. The Hindus had... Uh, A bit spoiled for choice, they have 40,000 different gods, which is, you know, that's a substantial number. It's a useful number, you know. So, each force of nature was personified as a god. That's an El. And, of course, in Hebrew, when we want to emphasize the non-divine nature of a force, we call it an Elil. Call it Elilim. These are forces which we wrongly identify as gods. So says Yehuda Levi... The word Elohim means the totality of all those forces. Elohim means the sum total of forces operative in the universe. All of which are one God, Elohim. Elohim is the cause of causes, the force of forces... It is the universe of all operative and possible forces. It is a generic noun, a collective term. Hashem, he says, is a, not just a different description of God, it's a different figure of speech. Hashem is a proper name. Just as Abram was called Abram and David was called David, Hashem is called Hashem. That is Hashem's, Proper name. And only a person has a proper name. I know sometimes you give names to pets, and sometimes if you've had your car a long time and it's got a mind of its own, you call your car, and they, well, maybe not a polite name, I don't know. One, one way or another. So when we're dealing with God in universal terms, we call Shem Elohim, but when we are looking at the particularity of God, God as a person, Yisa Hashem, God turns His face, then we call Him Hashem. So even in the names of God, we find the same transition from the name which symbolizes God as the totality of forces in the universe to God, the person who turns to us in love. So we've seen four different dualities. The story, the covenant, the relationship, the name, each of which has a universal and it has a particular. The same applies to forms of knowledge. In Judaism, there is not one form of knowledge, but two. And Chazal put this best in the form of a famous comment in the Midrash Im Omrim Lacha Yesh Bagoyim Ta'amin. Im Omrim Yesh Torabagoim Al Ta'amin. If they say to you, There is Wisdom among the nations, believe it. If they say to you there is terror among the nations, don't believe it. There is a form of knowledge called chokhmah, which is universal. Um, many years ago I had the Zuchut of getting an honorary doctorate from Cambridge University. If you ever have the choice, always have an honorary doctorate. It's much less work than the real thing. <laughs> and I had the zuchut of receiving it with uh, James Watson, who, uh, as you know, received the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA uh, together with Francis Crick. And I made over him the bracha: umoto olam varach asher she'notan we have in Judaism a bracha to be made over sages of the nations of the world, over great scientists. I make it over Nobel Prize winners. Can you imagine this? It's a fantastic thing. When Chazal made this bracha, who were the chachmei umot olam? Who were the umot from which the chachamim came? They were the Greeks and the Romans. The Greeks who in the days of, uh, of uh, Antiochus banned the practice of Judaism and the Romans who destroyed the temple. And yet despite the fact that Greeks and Romans, the whole civilization was opposed to everything we stand for and despite the fact that they persecuted them, us, nonetheless Chazal were open-minded enough to say they too have chokhmah because im omrim chokhmah bagoyim tamid. Read the Arachayim on Parshish Yisro. The Arachayim asks the obvious question, why in Parshish Yisro? One chapter before Matan Torah, Israel receives its first structure of governance. Who does it receive it from? Yisro, Koran Midian, a non-Jew. Says the Arachayim, to teach you that Akkadish Baruch Hu did not give the Torah to Israel just because We're clever. He didn't give it to us just because we won 28% of Nobel Prizes in physics and 39% in economics. Yeah, Jews are clever. But that's not why he gave us the Torah. (laughs) Yesh Chochmah Bagoyim and to teach us that, says uh, the Arachim, the Torah tells us about Yisro giving Moshe Rabbeinu advice about how to lead the Jewish people because (laughs) yesh Chochmah Bagoyim. So we now see that there are two forms of knowledge. Chochmah and there is Torah. There is the knowledge we discover, that is called Chokhmah, and there is the knowledge that we inherit, that is called Torah. Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe, Morasha, Yilat Yakov. That is not knowledge we discover for ourselves, that is knowledge we inherit from Moshe Rabbeinu and the Shal Shelete Kabbalah. Chokhmah is the knowledge that human beings are able to discover because we are all B'tzalem Elohim. Rashi says, Every human being is gifted by God with the ability to understand and discriminate and learn Chochmah. But... Torah, that is something we have because we are because we are God's children and he told us in a very special paternal way how to live. He didn't do this for any other nation. We alone have our laws not just from a legislature but direct from God. Chokhmah describes the world that is. Torah describes the world we are called on to make. Chokhmah teaches us facts. Torah teaches us commands. Once we make this distinction, we can understand our tension between a very famous statement of the Rambam and an equally famous statement of Chazal. Which seemed to be a flat contradiction to one another. Chazal said Omer b'shem Omro la-olam. When you teach something, teach it in the name of one the one who said it. And then you bring redemption to the world. It's important to know who said it. The Rambam says Kabelhamet Mimisha Amra accept the truth, whoever said it. What's important is that it's true. What's completely unimportant is who said it. If Crick and Watson hadn't discovered DNA, somebody else would have done. Who discovered it's not important? What they discovered is important. So the Rambam says, completely unimportant to know who said it. Ghazal say it's vitally important to know who said it. Why? How is there uh, the resolution? The Rambam is talking about chokhmah Chazala talking about Torah. Chokhmah is the truth we discover. And what's important about it is not who discovers it, but what they discover. Kabel Chazal Chazala talking about Torah. Torah is the truth we inherit. And therefore it's important to know who inherited it from whom. You always need to know who? The provenance when it comes to inheritance. Fine. So we see now this dual structure in Judaism whether it applies to the story of the Bible, whether it talks about the Brit, whether it talks about relationships, whether it talks about the names of God, whether it talks about forms of knowledge, Judaism has a dual-track approach to the human situation. The universal, which applies to everyone, and the particular, which applies only to us. Now, I want to go one further. We, uh, for the guys from Eretzvi uh, uh, yeah, that's you guys we were just talking about the 13 or maybe 14 principles of the Rambam the Rambam held Yud Gimel Ekarim 13 principles of faith although we have added a little footnote there <coughs> however the Tashbets from Shimon Ben Tsar Duran says that we can simplify the Rambam structure If you analyze the 13 principles of the Rambam, you will see they all fall within three broad categories. Creation, Revelation, Redemption. God created the universe, he revealed his will to us, and he, together with us, brings redemption to the world. And you will see that also in the Siddha. Look at once more at the brachas of Kriyashima. What is the first bracha about? Yatseham orot, Hamari Varevim, what's that about? Mm-hmm. Creation. Second revel uh, second bracha about Avarabbah. Tainabilien la avila it's all about Torah, that is about mm-hmm. Revelation. Badi avad... If you didn't make birchas haTorah in the morning, avarabah counts, but the avad as a bracha over the Torah. That's about revelation. The third bracha. What are the words? Goal Yisrael. It's about redemption. So creation, revelation, redemption. Have a look at the amidas for Shabbos, Friday evening. Ata kidashta zimah Shabbos. Shabbos of creation. Shabbos shachris yismach Moshe b'matnas chalke ki Moshe, revelation. He comes down bringing uh, the, the, the Torah. Mincha, echad. When will that be? When there's redemption. So, creation, revelation, redemption is the basic structure of Jewish faith. And you see it not only from the Tashbeds, you see Chazal elders and they structured tefillah around these structures. Now, if you have a look, if you imagine a diagram at the top of this triangle imagine at the top there's God down there there's universe down there there's us right what is the relationship between God and the universe (coughs) creation what is the relationship between God and us revelation what happens when you apply revelation to creation the result is redemption When you apply Torah to the world, the result is ge'ulah. So that is how those things go together. And now we understand something very fundamental about Judaism. That to create redemption, we have to apply revelation to creation. We have to apply Torah to the world. And in order to apply Torah to the world, we have to understand the world. To repeat, for us to understand creation, that's called Chokhmah. For us to understand revelation, that's called Torah. So we need to understand both Torah and Chokhmah, both God's will and word as embodied in the Torah and God's work as embodied in the universe, we have to understand both revelation and creation, both Torah and Chochmah. And when we don't understand Chochmah, we may have a deep understanding of Torah. But we don't understand how to apply it to the world because we don't understand the world. However, I want to just capture a moment, I think before you were born, it's happening about March 1991. That's before you were born, is that about right? Or you were just being born around then? Something? No. you. Okay, so this is, as far as you're concerned, the Jurassic era. Okay. <laughs> here it is. Elaine and I and our family, who are then 20 years younger than they are now, are here in Yerushalayim, Kodesh. I put off the chief rabbinate so I could spend a year just to breathe in the atmosphere of Yerushalayim Medina Yisrael you know you're going to be chief rabbi of a country in Golis uh, there's a special Galut which is called Britain and uh, <laughs> so it's great it's wonderful and it, you know and I know you're doing your best to make me feel at home with this wonderful English weather today <laughs> but, you know, to be inspired, don't go to Britain. You come to Yerushalayim, Ira So we came to Yerushalayim, Ira to find peace of mind. And with our muzzle, we found ourselves in the middle of the first Gulf War. Now, the first Gulf War, um, 1991, Saddam Hussein launching 39 Scud missile attacks on Israel. This was a time of special Hashgacha because they all, all missed Parach Hashem. There was, I think, uh, at most one casualty from 39 Scud missiles. It was a miracle. And every time the alarm went off, people had to go into their sealed rooms, put on a gas mask and so on. And you know the biggest casualty of the first Gulf War was family Stress. Because apparently Israelis were not used all to all sitting together as a family in one little room for prolonged periods. <laughs> and they kind of weren't used to how this is done. And there were a lot of family arguments and rows and domestic goodness knows what. And the biggest casualty was family stress. So the mayor of Yushalayim at that time, who was called Teddy Kollek. set up just before the end of the Gulf War a special task force on family stress. And we who are just here, you know, just, as I say, just uh, spending (laughs) an extended break before taking up the chief rabbinate. The phone goes one day, it's the (laughs) mayor's office, Gvod Rosha. Yeah, would Rabbi Sachs be the rabbinical representative on this task force to deal with family stress? (laughs) Now, um, you know, um, One wonderful thing about Britain is it gives you a sense of humor. And so I burst out laughing. I said, obviously you have no other rabbis in Jerusalem that you have to call on a British tourist. I said, you're not short of rabbis in Yushalayim in Akkadosh. Why don't you choose one of them? And the reply came back from the (laughs) mayor's office. There are plenty of rabbis in Yushalayim. But no one who knows how to deal with family stress. And I said... To myself, Oi la el bona Torah. Woe for the humiliation of Torah, that for all this Torah in Yerushalayim, there's no more. I mean, kimitzion Torah It was then. It was. It is now. There is concentrated Torah in Yerushalayim like nowhere else in the world. But it couldn't be applied to the world because the people who were learning Torah didn't understand the world. They didn't understand the economics, the psychology, the sociology, the entire structure of what makes a political system work, what makes a social system work, because there were kulu Torah. Somebody who says, I have nothing but Torah, doesn't even have Torah because you cannot apply that Torah to the world and thus redeem the world. Redemption comes. When you apply revelation to creation, it comes when you apply Torah to the real world. And that is why HaKadosh Baruch, who created this dual structure, there is this universe, and there is knowledge of this universe called Chokhmah, which everyone has, but we have it in order to sanctify it by applying Torah to it, and thus turning the world that is, the world discovered by science, into the world that ought to be, which is the world as disclosed by Torah. Unless you understand Torah, unless you understand the world, you cannot apply Torah to the world. Now, when it comes to Chochmah, Jews are not bad at it. I mentioned all those Nobel Prize winners, 54% of World chess masters, 49 percent authors of the 100 greatest books of the 20th century. Uh, when it comes to alcosism, we have plenty of those as well, more <laughs> than our share. Here we are, point .5 one, one-fifth of one percent of the population of the world. And you let you look in every field. whoever created that field is pretty likely to be Jewish. In, in in physics, Einstein. In sociology, Durkheim. In anthropology, Levi Strauss. In philosophy, Bergson, Wittgenstein. In music, Mahler, Schoenberg. In literature, Kafka, Proust. You name it. In psychotherapy, everyone. <laughs> Except Jung. I mean, I, I, you know why Jews created every form of psychoanalyst? Because we're probably the people who need it more than anyone else. But. <laughs> one way or another. So Jews have created such Chochmah in the world. And Jews have created such Torah in the world. The trouble is this. There are very rare forms of cerebral lesion in which both the right and left hemispheres of the brain are intact, but the connection between them is broken. And that rare form of cerebral lesion leads to dysfunction of the personality. Right now, the whole of the Jewish world is suffering collectively from that cerebral lesion. We have the right hemisphere of the brain, the world of Torah. We have the left hemisphere of the brain, the world of Chokhmah. But the connection between them is weak. And that results in dysfunction of the personality. It results in a Torah that is confined and honed and beautifully... Fired in Yeshivot and the Beit Midrash. But it doesn't function out there in Rechovash Ear In the way Israel is structured or the way society is structured, its economy, its social services, its welfare, its whole way of functioning. You remember when Avram Avinu said... When he was praying for the Anshay Saddam, Ulaesh (laughs) Chamishim Tzadikim Betochair. Maybe there are 10, 50 righteous people in the midst of the city, and he gets down to 10 Tzadikim (laughs) Betochair. And Rav Shimshan Revel Harsh says, Why does he add the words (laughs) Betochair? Because a Tzadik who is not (laughs) Betochair can save himself, but he can't save the city. To be a Tzadik, for whom Avinu prays, you have to be betolcha'ir in the midst of a city, in the midst of the real life of a society. You can't be a tzaddik and help to save the city. You will only save yourself. You will not save the world. this is the great spiritual opportunity you will have when you go to university you will be able to add to your Torah, Chochmah as well. And out of that combination of Torah and Chochmah, the Torah you learned in Yeshiva and the Chochmah you will learn in university, those two things combined will allow you to be an agent of redemption. They will allow you in your particular bit of the world to help change the world. Nefesh Achat Ke'olam Malay One life is like an entire universe. Therefore, if you want to change the universe, do it one life at a time, one day at a time, one act at a time. That's the only way you change the world. And whether you are studying medicine to save life, whether you are studying economics to alleviate poverty, whether you are studying law to be an agent of justice, whether you are working in any of the multiple fields that you will be working in, you can become an agent of gu'ulah. You can help redeem the world by making the world that is a little more like the world that ought to be. And that is the task of a Jew. University, from the word universal, from the word universe, which is that whole strand that I've given you, one-track, in the Jewish vision of the world and Torah which you are learning here which is that other track the Jewish particularity when Jewish particularity meets universality something magical and miraculous is created you bring the Shekhinah from heaven to live down here on earth even if it is just by one act of decency or integrity or kindness or honesty or courage, that helps change the world. Friends, I've tried to give you a a really broad picture of what the spiritual possibilities are that are opened out for you on your university campus that you are going to. I cannot pretend that it's going to be easy. I cannot pretend that it's even going to be universally nice. Out there on secular universities, you have people who are not merely secular, but secularists, who believe that that world is all there is. You will find people who will challenge your faith. And that's tough. And then you will find, for what reason, Rebunashe alone understands, I do not know why, you will find a hostility to Medina, Yisrael on some university campuses, not on all. Which is heartbreaking. And the only way to deal with it is Never to be afraid. Walk tall. Never let your faith be challenged. Never let your faith be tested, I mean. Never for one second believe that what you learn in university, whatever you're studying, is incompatible with Torah. It isn't so. And I don't say that lightly. I've spent a long time working in this field. If somebody tells you that Torah is false because of this finding or that finding, whether it be in biblical studies or scientific studies, they are wrong. Take it from me, they are wrong. But you have to be strong. And the way to be strong is to go to Campuses where there are other Jews, where you have the strength of Hevruta between you, don't try and be the only Jew on a university campus. Lotov hayota adam It's not good to be alone. From this you won't see any brach. I'm, I'm sorry to say this. Go to a university campus where there's a strong community of Jews, where you can strengthen one another. Don't give up, God forbid, on your learning. Kvirs itim la Torah. You should be learning every single day. ta university idea of hard work is you go to two lectures a day, 26 weeks in a year, or is that only the university I went to? Maybe they work you harder a little bit nowadays. I don't know. Um, one way or the other, whatever university course you're going through, and some of them are very demanding, there's still time for Torah, and that time will be a time of blessing for you. So go there with other Jews. Have chevruses. The best way to learn when you're at university is to teach. Don't only find chaverim; you should have chevruses with people who also studied at Yeshiva, but you should also dedicate at least once a week time to teach somebody who did not have the advantage of coming here to learn for a year or two that you were given. The more you teach, the more you will know. I tell you that you're learning that you learn by teaching will be deep in a way that even your chevruses are not. So go there, be strong. Don't be intimidated. If you are ever intimidated by what you feel is an aggressive secularism or even worse, an aggressive anti-Israelism, do me a favor. Look up my email address. I couldn't possibly tell you. I have no idea how to do an email. But one way or another, <laughs> email me. Get in touch with your local Hillel councillor or in Britain with the CST, and you'll be in, they will be in touch with me. You will, we will not leave you alone, I promise. I, I feel very much for students. My, I spend and we spend in our office a lot of time working with students. You will not be alone. But I hope I've given you an overview of what it is that you can learn at university that you can use to grow as Jews to sanctify God's name in public. May Hashem be with you just as he has been with you in this year of kedusha. May he be with you as you go out into the world. May you be a source of pride to the Jewish people. Thank you very much.
0: Do we do some questions? questions yeah. Talk to questions, right? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Well, Thanks. Now I actually taking questions. So <coughs>
1: I, I have a, a little ear infection. I mean, I'm absolutely serious, so I can't hear very well. So, um, please, whoever has a question, could you please ask Ozbekol Rash Gadol, you know, with a with a bit of volume, and uh, so we can all hear it. Who who would like to ask a question? Yeah. Uh, what
0: factors? Very loudly, what, loudly. What factors have led to uh, decadence of society, both religiously and socially, among others? Uh, specifically
1: what should we be on, on guard for what factors have led to decadence in society it happened um, um, I, I know i was there it happened <laughs> it happened in something called the 60s <laughs> And in the 1960s, something historic happened. And I have to be honest with you, I was aware of it happening at the time. An older generation, after two world wars, and all the delayed exhaustion that came through them, lost confidence in itself. And for one moment failed to hand on its values to the next generation. I can remember exactly where I was when it was happening. It was in nineteen sixty seven, not not the six day war bit of nineteen sixty seven. I was listening to what was a very famous institution in Britain called the Wreath Lectures. The first there a course of six lectures given on BBC Radio, the first person to give them in nineteen forty eight was Bertrand Russell, and they were very famous lectures, and I was listening as a student in 1967. Much later, I actually gave them myself in 1990. I was listening to somebody called Edmund Leach, Sir Edmund Leach, the master of King's College, Cambridge, where I was studying. There was the college next to mine. He was a great, great figure, and those wreath lectures were in effect saying, you know, all the values that my generation stood for are wrong. And we really leave the field open to you. you. You decide. And that was when the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love, and it was a very idealistic age. And people thought that you can have all the good things in life without any controls, restraints, any thou shalt nots, any institutional and, and, and moral commitments. And I remember clearly that it was when this great and good person, who was typical of his whole generation, in effect said, you young guys, we leave the field to you, we messed it up, you go and find a new way. You know, when the Torah says, hand these values onto your children, laman yirbu dama, you know, when a generation fails to hand its values on to the next generation, a whole civilization collapses. And don't think the Torah doesn't spell this out right at the beginning. We know why God chose Noah. Ish Tamim we know why he chose Adam. There was no one else to choose. We also know why he chose Moshe Rabbeinu. We have a little vignette of Moshe Rabbeinu, fighter for justice. But why did God choose Avram Avinu? Doesn't call him an Ish Sadiq, it doesn't say anything. There is only one place in Torah where it says why Akkadesh Baragu chose Avram in uh Parshis uh Payera Kiyedati <laughs> Lomana She Yet Saved Banaved Baitoa Khrabas Ramru Derah Hashem Avram was chosen to add his values on to the next generation. Jews never failed to hand their values on to their children and for that reason alone, Jews became um, Amulam, the only people ever that never went decadent. The only civilization that never grew old. And for one moment in the 60s, the West lost that and 50 plus years later we are paying the price. And it's that simple. And therefore, to be a Jew today means, like Avram, we have to find ourselves in a cognitive minority uh, because we really do believe in an ethic of self-control and self-restraint and commitments like marriage and (coughs) its sanctity and all the rest of it. So that's how it is and why it is. But in Brera, that's the way we've got to be. And I believe that if we do that with courage, confidence and graciousness, other people will admire us for it. Okay? Next question, yeah.
0: Uh, At school I often found that the biggest challenges to Judaism came not from friends who weren't Jewish, (coughs) but from people who were less religious Jews. How, especially at university, do you advise seeing the people who come up to you and ask you why you do things, whereas other people who are equally Jewish do not do certain things, like castra or shabbos? (coughs)
1: <coughs> Look, that's a <laughs> that's a really good question. I, w- I wish I had a <laughs> I wish I had a really good answer. You know, I mean, you know, you know, the, the greatest civilizations the world has ever known have tried to destroy the Jewish people: Egypt, Assyria, Babylon the Greek, uh, Ale- uh, the Alexandrian Empire, the Roman Empire, so on and so forth. You know, all of them, all the way up to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Every one of them has been consigned to history. And still, I'm Al Chai. But three times Jews could not get on with one another, once in the days of Joseph and his brothers, once in the days immediately following the death of Shlomo where the kingdom divided into two, in the days of uh, uh, Rehoboam and Yeroboam. And number three, in the Baisheni period, where a period of Sinos Chinam. There is only one people in the entire universe capable of threatening the future of the Jewish people, and that is the Jewish people. So it's the challenges from our fellow Jews that are harder than any other challenge. And what you say to a guy who says, I'm Jewish and I don't keep kosher. (laughs) So why do you keep kosher? You say, well, because, because I'm a child of my parents, I'm a child of my people, and I have a responsibility to the past of which I am an heir and the future of which I am the guardian." And I do not presume to judge the way you live your life. But please don't presume to judge the way I live my life. In faithful, being faithful to the values that it kept our people strong for 4,000 years and kept our people as the people that won the respect of the people we respect. And I think you just have to tell it the way it is without being judgmental about anyone else and you just go and once in a while weep in a corner that we are such a difficult people. Uh, Just go figure, Hashem knew all that in advance and still He chose us so if He can love us so we can love our people even if they are sometimes not tremendously lovable. And I can't do better than that. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, please. How would you suggest getting professors that are biased
1: against Israel or Jews and who make great as such? We um, we have, you know, a number of uh, ambassador and advocacy programs. <laughs> and uh, do, do you know of those here? We've been running them in <coughs> the Israel <laughs> Ambassadors Program. For the American Council. The American don't they have such a thing in America? Okay, well, uh, guys. <laughs> you got to get in touch with uh, Hillel, the central Hillel organization in Washington. I don't know who's running that these days. It was Richard Joel. Who was Richard Joel's successor? Got in touch with them, with APAC. Yeah? And ask them for their student guides. Yeah? <laughs> And you've got to read the basic stuff. Alan Dershowitz has written, you know, The Case for Israel, The Case for Peace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I, I think you have to um, keep reading and reminding yourself. I, I mean, you know, it's it's a large, very large literature and an important literature. Uh, but it's Alan Dershowitz in America, people like Melanie Phillips in Britain who make that case very strongly. I think it does call for an ongoing look at those people who do defend Israel against its critics and if you're really um, and I've done a it's not Hasbaral but I've done, I did two years ago um, a double CD just telling Israel's story um, in a way that I thought students might find helpful and uh, we have it on a website I just um, you can, we'll, we'll send if you get in touch, if you email me and tell me, where we, remind me where we met, we'll send you the double CD, uh, but if you want it more directly it's a website called Home of Hope, yeah? homeofhope.whatever it is
0: <laughs> what? what?
1: chiefrabbi.org or chiefrabbi.org um, or click on our YouTube video, O Se Shalom, which you can all sing. You all know that one. I won't ask you to sing it just now. Um, that, that's the one, exactly. <laughs> and it will tell you, you know, if, if you want to see more, click on Home of Hope, and you'll, you'll download it from there. And that's just a way of telling the story in words and music. But otherwise, APAC, Hillel, and if you're really stuck, email me directly. Yeah. Um, sorry, yeah. Do you think that within the
0: Jewish high, sh- um, high school education system, there needs to be greater emphasis on topics such as biblical criticism and you know the like and secularism in order to prepare students and to alleviate the shock when they reach college campuses, despite the fact that the average Jewish teenager might not necessarily be prepared to handle topics like that?
1: I, I think you need to learn it as and when you know, as and when you face it. Um, look, I'm I'm really not au fait with the literature. What literature will help you through um, biblical criticism? Pardon? You know that. I mean, that's, that's a tough one. At
0: this event, we had Rabbi Shelo come and speak to the group about the Securus and different approaches.
1: You recorded it. You transcribed it. We
0: recorded it, and it's on the JLIC website. Okay,
1: so listen to Rabbi Shelo's lecture <laughs> um, on the on the Securus. You mean the Richard Dawkins type? I, I, think, I think a high school probably ought to prepare you for those challenges. Chazal said, Dama al-Hashiv, know how to reply to somebody who challenges your faith. And I think we may have underachieved in that field. So, yeah, I think maybe we should do more. I was picking up, and it probably doesn't apply to anyone here, but I was picking up over the last couple of years that there is a group a, a number of young Jews who have been reading Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and they, it's caused them problems in Emuna. so um, my next book is going to be a direct reply to those particular things um and Alex's mother is the midwife to that particular project and it should be out in about May of this year Um, on the biblical criticism I will write something but not in time for you so I'm sorry about that so read Rabbi Shelo's thing and uh, ask around on the literature Uh there is uh, 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 Professor Mordechai Breuer who's written on this subject but that is not the only way of dealing with that issue and I don't want to for one moment suggest that's the only way of dealing with it. That's a very mystical way of dealing with it and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the way that will speak to you. But Rabbi Sherlock may well have found the way and there are other ways. And and the classic of course is uh, Rav Solovey, Chixasal's Lonely Man of Faith which is an essay entirely directed to one very specific detail of biblical criticism, how come we have two accounts which are conflicting accounts of creation? The account of Barathees 1 and the account of II 2-3. And what is great about The Lonely Man of Faith is it takes a challenge to Emunah and out of that challenge, Mine Bey, he builds this vast structure of Jewish thought which is it's beautiful in every sense, aesthetically and spiritually, and that will—that's the kind of binyan of it. Is a an example that illustrates the whole field. So, yeah, I think we should be doing a little more in our high schools, and I'm glad you reminded me of this. And I say chadasi, we we failed perhaps a little bit there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Perhaps it
0: could be my minded misunderstanding you, but when you stated that revelation literal sense that he refers to Torah, does that necessarily mean that there's room to entertain the notion that perhaps revelation excludes God's direct interaction with this world war, and more, and only has the capability of doing so, but doesn't choose to do so? What? <laughs> God
1: reveals himself in words, and he reveals himself in history. Okay? You see, when when you have a parent who shows you, you know, A parent who shows you how to grow up, that parent does two things for you. Number one, he shares words with you. He or she shares words with you. Your father and your mother will tell you what values to live by, what principles to apply to your life. But they will also show you by living example. Are you with me? So, revelation comes in two kinds. Words are revealed, these are the principles by which you should live your life. And here are some living examples. So Hashem showed us living examples of what it is to take a people from slavery to freedom, of what it is to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. Hashem somech noflim v'rofech olim u'matir So Hashem reveals himself both in Torah, and in Nisim v'nifla'ot, in miracles, some of them revealed, others hidden, you know, because his his miracles are with us. Erev v'voke v'tzorayim, as we say in the davening, what the Ramban calls hidden miracles. So Hashem is revealing himself in two wo- ways, one in words and one in deeds. The words are with us for a lifetime. The deeds tend to... the the overt deeds tended to be at the beginning of our people's history. And as history developed, they became more concealed. Just as a parent shows you how to behave, but expects as you grow up that you will do that for yourself more and more. Are you with me? So that is the way Hashem reveals himself in these two different ways. Plus there's the third way God reveals himself in creation to those who are able to, to see the divine in creation. Yeah.
0: You described a vision where creation and revelation go together. Yeah. How is that supposed to play out for us in our classroom experiences, in our professional experiences? Is it just something on the theoretical level where we think about what we're learning and we make connections? Or is it something more practical where the way we, ch- we interact with Jews of different sects, non-Jews, and the way in which we go about doing things is uniquely different?
1: Yeah, it, it f- functions at both levels. It functions at the level of the mind and it functions at the level of the deed. Um, the, at the level of the mind, that has more power. You know, the Gemara in, at the end of Kiddushin asks which is greater, Talmud <laughs> or Ma'aseh? And Rabbi Akiva comes along and says, Gadol ha talmud de So what we learn at the level of mind has the power that it affects us also at the level of deed, whereas... The Rambam adds, not every deed also affects us at the level of the mind. So, um, there is a task. Wh- what are you going to be studying? I don't know yet. You don't know? Ah, okay. But, you know, there is at the level of... of, of um, look, you take at the level of economics, right? There is at the, the most basic level. G- Hashem has given us the power to alleviate poverty and create prosperity. Um, I wrote a little book. I've written books about all these things because I didn't automatically assume that everyone could make those connections. So I did uh, Judaism and Politics in a book called The Politics of Hope. I did Judaism and Globalization uh, in a book called Dignity of Difference. I did Jews and Psychotherapy and Ethical Action in a book called To Heal a Fractured World. I did Jews and, and Liberal Democratic national identities in a book called The Home We Build Together. So I've gone around from this discipline to that, to that, to that, to make those mental connections so that you don't have to really find yourself lost without a a satellite navigation system. You know, you need to know how to go. I haven't yet written the book on Judaism and psychotherapy, which I think is tremendously important. You have Sigmund Freud who used a non-Jewish model And essentially, Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis is based on Greek mythology. And the result is Sigmund Freud developed a psychoanalysis, which is not a Jewish approach to psychoanalysis, although there are obvious Jewish elements to it. But I think he showed us a wrong turning in psychotherapy. There are two Jews alive today, and one who is not alive today, whom I never met and so wish I could have met, who have shown us a much more Jewish approach in psychotherapy. The one who is no longer alive was called Viktor Frankl, who developed a whole school of psychotherapy called Logotherapy, which he developed (coughs) in Auschwitz when he was a prisoner there. And he has written many books. The most famous one is Man's Search for Meaning. There is the founder of cognitive therapy, which is the most powerful form of psychotherapy ever invented, who's called Aaron Beck, and the inventor of something called positive psychology or learned optimism called Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman and Aaron Beck both live in Philadelphia. I've had the privilege of meeting both of them and connecting their work with Judaism. They're, they're Jewish. They haven't made the connection themselves. But it was my privilege at their request to re- help them understand what, how their work fitted on the Jewish map. So their work is So you can make those connections. In economics, you know, it was a Jewish economist called David Ricardo who invented this wonderful thing called the law of comparative advantage, which I wrote about in Dignity of Difference. But you look at the, f- at the great economists who have devoted their time to alleviating global poverty. One of them is called, um, he's a namesake of mine, Jeffrey Sachs, the head of the United Nations Development <coughs> Plan, who taught... Economics at, at Columbia and uh, at Harvard for, for all these years. Jeffrey Sachs is the world's greatest developmental economist. You have uh, Sir James Wolfenson, a nice, lovely Heinrich Jew who was the previous president of the World Bank. You have um, um, the former economist of the World Bank, Joe Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002 for his work. So Jews have gone out there in economics. To help, you know, the, to, to help. No lachem uh, There are uh, the Jews, as I say, who've done developed the psychotherapy, which is lev And so, with all areas of those connections, once you made them in the mind, will translate into deeds in your actual life. And you will know how you are helping be makarev, hagu'ullah, helping to bring redemption one day closer. Um, I think, sorry, uh, what are our time? What? I, th- I think, yeah, um, one more from there and one more from there. You're, two more questions, yeah. If you have
0: a false mile, which is a universal and ethical truth, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So is the Torah, is it a
1: intrinsic value of existence in and of itself, or is it only a vessel, a derrick through which we could ch- achieve ontological truth? Is it only the derrick? Sorry, I'm. I, which we achieve ontological truth. Well, <coughs> the Torah is a way that we as Jews live a truth that can be understood and admired and respected by people throughout the world. And let me be very blunt with you. I don't say this as a matter of theoretical abstraction. I have tried to teach Torah in a lot of contexts, many of them not Jewish. And it's been my zuchud to discover that when you teach Torah, without compromise, without apology, without fear and without any kind of reticence, People out there, whether they're the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope or the Dalai Lama, all three of whom, with whom I've had the privilege of learning Torah a little bit, <laughs> they learn something from the truth that we live. The Torah does not ask the Dalai Lama to keep Shabbos, although he'd probably quite like to. Um, but so that. You know, not everyone is called on to live our truth, our way. But Hashem is nonetheless the creator of the universe who created every single human being in His image. And I profoundly believe in ways we may not fully understand at the time, our living, our truth out there in the world (coughs) lifts the entire moral standing of the world. We inspire others to do good in their ways and thus we become what Hashem asked Avram or promised Avram at the very beginning of his mission <laughs> we know exactly how that happened in the days of Avram Avram did not ask the Anshay Saddam to behave like him but he prayed on their behalf even though he knew perfectly well that they were the truth is, he couldn't save them. They couldn't because they wouldn't save themselves. But nonetheless, Avram's horizons were vast. But he never asked other people to, particularly, to say to them, "If you don't follow my way, you are uh, not, you know, you're not going to inherit Olam Haba." So that is the nature of humanity. One God up there creates diversity down here. And he asks us, by being what only we can be, to contribute to humanity what only we can give. And when we do that, we enlarge the heritage of humanity as a whole. And I'm sorry I didn't use the word ontological, but not everyone here understands <laughs> what that means. Ontological means as a matter of being. Sorry. And, and the last question up there, yeah. Um, hypothetically, if someone has an hour for a and sorry, I, I, sorry, please, sp- can you sort of speak a bit louder? Yeah. Hypothetically,
0: if someone has, the, has an hour for a chavritah and they have the choice between a chavritah with someone who went to yeshiva a seminary and has like learned on the same level of them and they, it'll be a really intense coverage and they'll learn a lot more, or a chavritah with someone else, who hasn't
1: necessarily learned so much and you can teach a lot more, what would you suggest? Well, I would suggest that you made time in your schedule for both.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: we only have halachic criteria of priority. I say, dohalos, I and all the other orders of priority. Rak, i efshe'alakayim, shne'em, only when it is impossible to fulfill both. So I would read the best books of time management you can possibly read. (laughs) The best of which, I don't think I earn commission on his work, but in case you have never read it, you should. It is a very famous book which has been on the bestseller list for 10, 15 years. It is called, what is called The Seven Habits of... Successful People by Stephen Covey. C-O-V-E-E- C-O-V-E-Y. It's not a Jewish book. It's Chochmah. It's not Torah. But it's an extremely brilliant book. And you should read it. And you should live it. And uh, it will be very useful to you. But if under the circumstances you really have no choice, it's either this or that, the Gemara says, much did I learn from my teachers even more from my colleagues, but most of all from my pupils. So if you have a choice, and this is a choice that is absolutely unavoidable, between learning from somebody who knows more than you do or teaching somebody who le- knows less than you do, you take the second choice. Because that way, by lifting them, you yourself will be lifted. You're a great crowd. I wish you brahavatsalacha.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank Alex for his and inspiring words.